Hi, I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and welcome to Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm joined by my co-host, Steve Saidman, to bring you episode 16, which is called Climate Change and the Arctic. We have Professor Will Greaves from the University of Victoria to talk about environmental security, Canada-US relations, and circumpolar politics. Before that, Steve and I have a quick chat about the aftermath of the Iran-US crisis, the implications for US allies and NATO, and then we switch gears to talk about the Canadian Armed Forces Operation Lentis after the snowstorms in Newfoundland and Labrador. We end the podcast with Steve's peeve on American politics and the false equivalence between the Democrats and Trump's Republicans. Hey, Stephanie, how you doing? I'm doing great. I see you're drinking beer and doing fieldwork in Europe again. Yeah, I just returned back from Germany. Uh, I was unable to get all the interviews I needed last spring, so I returned last week. And the challenge is that to talk to a bunch of parliamentarians, you have to talk to them in the national capital, but they're only in the national capital when they've got a very full schedule of meetings. And thanks to Donald Trump and the attack in Iraq, people I was talking to were busier. They were having plenary sessions. It was really interesting because the different parties have a variety of positions on this stuff where the left party wants to kick the Americans out of Germany, essentially, because there is a concern that the Rammstein Air Force Base is being used to control drones that are hitting Iranians in Iraq. And what complicates this further, but it's also good for teaching civil relations, is that there's a requirement now, thanks to German courts. A German court said that Germany just can't take the American word that it's doing its best to prevent civilian casualties and drone strikes that are launched from German territory, it needs to prove it. So now Germany has to push the Americans to prove that they're doing their drone strikes that are launched from Germany in ways that are relatively minimizing civilian casualties. And this puts Germany in a weird position because in the past, Germany could just say, hey, the Americans said this and it's fine. Now they have to prove it. And I don't know how they do that, particularly since the Americans might actually not even say whether the drone strike was launched from German territory or not. Well, it seems that the events of the past two weeks have had a lot of implications for different countries. And of course, Canada has been no exception. Um, last time we recorded the podcast, I think we were really in the height of the crisis with Iran, but it was before the Iranian missile strike and before the downing of the re Ukrainian jet. So for Canada... Uh, you were talking about the implications for Germany, but for Canada, it's been about really dealing with the aftermath of, of that tragedy, working bilaterally with Iran to understand what happened and bring closure to the families of the Canadian victims. So now, I guess we're focused on the investigation, but it won't be easy because Canada doesn't have an embassy in the country. It'll take months, possibly years to get all of the answers those families are seeking. And I don't know about you, but what I've been really tracking, too, is the impact on the ongoing operations in the country because, of course, well, both Germany and Canada uh, have a role to play there, and as many other allies and partners do. Yeah, so it looks like the training has started again. 
but it's not exactly clear if it's back to 100% of what it was before. I do worry that there's a greater risk now that the folks we were training might shoot at us because they might be aggrieved about these past things, that public opinion in, in Iraq may have swung more against this kind of stuff. And we're also still trying to figure out whether the Iraqi parliamentary vote, which was not binding, will turn into something that is binding because the prime minister of Iraq has been pushing to kick out the international forces that are there, not just the Americans, but everybody else. So we really don't know what the future of this stuff really is. Yeah. So last time we spoke, we saw the main obstacle to ongoing operations in Iraq being the security conditions and and how they were worsening in this face-off between the United States and Iran. Now, the primary obstacle seems to be primarily political. And as you mentioned, this non-binding resolution that followed Soleimani's death. And it's been interesting to see the various responses with regards to this Iraqi resolution. Canada and the U.S. reacted quite differently to the Iraqi resolution, calling on the departure of foreign forces. Ottawa expressed respect for the decision and implied that Canada would not overstay its welcome. <laughs> Denmark is set to take over from Canada and in taking command of the NATO mission in Iraq. So I think that they would have similar positions. But when you look at Washington, Washington has a completely different take on the resolution. It has publicly questioned the legitimacy of the Iraqi parliament's resolution and threatened sanctions and the withdrawal of aid if Iraqi kicks out U.S. forces. Yeah, don't expect Donald Trump to follow the conventional playbook. He's overreacting to this, the Iraqi statements, making things a bit worse than they could be. Ultimately, I, I can't imagine that the United States would actually stay there for much longer if the Iraqis decide to develop a formal process to kick the Americans out. Because who's going to show up at the training sites if the Iraqi government says that the Americans aren't welcome anymore? And if nobody's showing up at the training sites, then the training is dead. Uh, so the Iraqis have an easy ability to turn that off, even if the Americans you know, hunker down on their bases. And I think that ultimately, if that were to happen, the Trump would ultimately have to relent and send the American forces home because it's it's really hard to imagine keeping American forces there if the Iraqis don't want them there. And this is not 2003. We don't have enough for the United States does not have enough forces to inflict its will on Iraq. Yeah, I just don't think it's likely that Trump will stick around. He's a paper tiger. He makes a lot of threats and then he doesn't follow through on them. So he can threaten Iraq all he wants. But if the Iraqis ultimately decide to push the Americans out, I think he'll submit. He'll try to declare some sort of victory. He'll say, hey, I can I finished my campaign promise of removing American forces from Iraq. Isn't this great? And his followers believe it because they'll believe anything he says. But even if uh, Iraq decides to do that, the timeline is unclear because Prime Minister Abdul Mahdi resigned last year. He's overseeing a caretaker government at the moment. So his successor will have to decide on the status of U.S. and foreign forces. There's still a lot of uncertainty. Indeed. And that's the region at large is a lot of uncertainty. One of the interesting things the past week or two on the blogosphere or on the on the Internet has been a debate about pulling out of the Middle East. Is the Middle East really all that worthy of our time and attention. Uh, is it really that important anymore now that many countries are no longer as reliant on oil as they used to be? And so I think we now care about the Middle East less so for oil for the United States or Canada, but more the oil going to Europe and obviously the rise of ISIS that I think what really matters for the Middle East these days is its production of terrorists and terrorism much more so than the old days where it was about oil fields. Let's uh, move on to a different kind of snow. We had a question from a listener on the role of the Canadian Armed Forces in weather emergencies. Yeah, there was an uh, article today where General Eyre, the chief of the Army, 
discussed how the Army's training is now being somewhat at risk because it's spending a lot of its time dealing with natural disasters. It's sending troops to Newfoundland to dig out the east from the snow. Last spring, there was a lot of involvement of the Army in the floods that hit Ottawa and elsewhere. Fires, fires out in the west have often occupied the Army. And the challenge is not so much that we don't have the troops to do it. It's just that it distracts them from their training cycles. And Air was arguing that it's okay to happen once or twice, but if we're constantly having weather emergencies that's causing the Army to engage in, in this sort of stuff rather than training, then they're not going to be as ready. They're not going to be as well trained for dealing with their day job, which is ultimately going someplace and fighting some adversary. But the Canadian Armed Forces managed to deploy, what was it, over 400 service members to Newfoundland and Labrador. Mm-hmm. So that's still under the umbrella of uh, Operation Lentis, so the same mm-hmm. operation name that we saw for the, the floods. And mm-hmm. so this operation is meant to respond to natural disasters uh, like floods, forest fires, and uh, insane amounts of snow. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to answer the, the question that we had, the Canadian Armed Forces in this case, they're, they're not the first responders but the CAF can be deployed at the request of provincial or territorial authorities. And that's what we saw over the weekend. I remember in the good old days when I was doing research on Canada and Afghanistan, if you take a look at the bios of most of the officers that time, at, at that time, those bios were all online for anybody who was a colonel and up. The ice storm of 1998 was uh, a major feature in a lot of people's bios. That, that was mm-hmm. a major operation that they participated in. This is not new for them to be doing this kind of thing, but it, it, the level of activity there, up-tempo, as they would say, has, is much higher than it used to be. And I, so there was a piece in today's paper that was actually arguing that we should increase the size of the CAF. Uh, this was Matt Gurney, who was arguing that we need a larger calf to deal with all these emergencies as well as the usual foreign deployments. The reservists were also called upon to uh, intervene within their communities when such disasters strike. And so the question might be, with an increasingly dangerous environment, thanks to climate change, do we need to increase the size of the forces because they're going to be doing more and more of this stuff? If we take a look at what Australia went through over the past several months, uh, you can imagine that happening in, in the nor- in the West and that utterly occupying uh, the Canadian forces for months to deal with forest fires of that magnitude. Exactly. Speaking of climate change and weather events, I was talking to Professor Will Greaves, who's our featured guest today on the podcast. Will is an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Victoria. His research is on environmental security, climate change, energy extraction, and indigenous peoples and the circumpolar Arctics, uh, focused on his presentation during the year ahead conference in Ottawa. So we talked about Canada-U.S. relations in the Arctic, what the security situation looks like in the circumpolar north, and what it means to indigenize the discipline of international relations, which is something I don't know, you may be familiar with at Carleton. I know that at Queen's, there's been a huge push. Take a second look at our curricula and see ways that we can uh, indigenize our our, our disciplines. Yes, yeah, so there's definitely been that going on at Carleton. There's been some jobs that have been assigned, competition to try to have people who are Indigenous or who specialize in Indigenous politics to, to come to Carleton. I think it's one of the things that we've been trying to do as well is try to uh, get more Indigenous perspectives in the CDSN. It's just a bit challenging because there's not as many uh, Indigenous organizations for, for security matters as there is, for instance, for Women in International Security Canada and WIDS and the other ones for women. So this is something definitely we've been working on and will continue to work on in the years ahead. Sounds good. Well, uh, I look forward to sharing this interview with you. You also have your peeve at the end of the episode. Yes, and my peeve this week is going to focus on the false equivalence machine uh, that seems to develop. We're going to see a lot of that in the next couple of weeks in the discussion of impeachment and in the American election. So that will be my peeve for this week. 
Excellent. Looking forward to it. Uh, thanks, Steph. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. And we'll be meeting again in two weeks to do the next Battle Rhythm. And if you got questions or comments, send them along. We could always use more material. And one last pitch that we have a, a postdoc competition for the CDSN. So if you're a recently graduated PhD, there are opportunities with the CDSN. And we'll be announcing more CDSN events in the weeks and months ahead. Welcome to Battle Rhythm, Will. I'm so pleased you could join us. Are you back to your normal academic rhythm at the University of Victoria? Uh, thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. It's a, it's a pleasure. And yeah, we're back to our rhythm more or less, a new semester. Uh, it always comes with a few bumps, but uh, we're well underway. Excellent. And you had an opportunity to participate in the Year Ahead Conference that was held before the holidays in December. So this is where I want us to start the discussion because you were a presenter. You got to share some of your research from your forthcoming book. The title is Arctic Insecurity, Polar Politics and Environmental Change in Canada and Norway. And it will be published by the University of Toronto Press. So can you give us a few highlights or favorite parts of this book or what you shared during the Year Ahead Conference? Yeah, absolutely. So the book comes out of my doctoral research at the University of Toronto and really began, um, as I think a lot of these kinds of projects do, kind of by accident. I had studied much more conventional security and defense issues uh, earlier in my graduate career. I was studying the war in Afghanistan and Canadian and NATO involvement in that conflict from a, from a human security perspective. But towards the end of my master's degree, on a personal level, I became increasingly focused on questions around climate change and the political security and defense implications of, of climate change, which kind of logically just led me to an interest in the Arctic, because that was where it seemed to me that questions around climate change, security, and certainly Canada and Canadian foreign policy all overlapped most strongly. So I entered into my doctoral program with a sense that that was what I wanted to focus on, but without a, a lot of prior knowledge, without a deep familiarity with the Arctic at all. And so it was a, a really an incredible you know, learning process for me and led in some very unexpected direction. What became quite clear early on, and this was in the kind of 2009 that I that I began my doctoral program was that all of the Arctic states, including Canada, were quite notably uh, reacting to climate change in the Arctic. That it wasn't a question, it wasn't a hypothetical, it was such an emergent reality that all eight of the Arctic states were, in their own ways, uh, updating their security and defense policies and their kind of more fundamental understandings in some ways of what security means as a result of, of the dramatic changes that were unfolding. That was the more obvious part, just kind of looking at how circumpolar states were responding to the changing climate and their security and defense policies as a result. The piece that became quite apparent, though, and that I think in some ways is the more interesting part of the project was to compare those state level understandings of security with how people actually living in the Arctic, notably, though not exclusively indigenous peoples, articulate the meaning of security from their perspective and what it means to them on really quite a fundamental level to have uh, you know such a dramatic change 
change unfolding in their homelands. And so as the project evolved, it became uh, something of a comparative project, although I'm not a comparative politics scholar, but a, a comparative project between state level and indigenous and non-state understandings of what security means in the Arctic in this very, you know, significantly altered physical, material, and ideational context. And so that's how the book is structured. It's, uh, you know, what is climate change? How is it unfolding in the Arctic? What is security? How, how does security come to take on various meanings? How does it get constructed in particular ways in certain contexts? And then empirically, uh, you know, obviously mapping and, and analyzing and then juxtaposing these state and non-state understandings of what security means. Did the audience react in particular ways when you presented this during the year ahead conference? I think this is a particularly innovative lens through which to discuss Arctic security and how states react to climate change, putting in parallel the state-based responses to a more human security approach. So what I presented at the year ahead conference was taking some of the basic ideas and framework that I developed in this book, but actually wanting to pivot away from an exclusive Arctic focus to look at Canada and Canada's national interests and security interests more broadly. So what I presented specifically and what I'm viewing as a, a kind of standalone piece, a smaller you know, subcomponent of the broader project, but something I'd like to publish independently is really trying to do an assessment, an updated assessment of uh, how climate change affects Canada's security interests across a range of domains, not exclusively in the Arctic. So threats to the Arctic or I should say both to the Arctic and then also in the Arctic are one of five different areas of Canada's national security interests that I identify as being uh, threatened by climate change. And so I develop more fully and I kind of articulated those five different uh, security interests, the way in which climate change affects all of them, and some of the, the possible near and medium term consequences of that that I see as a result. And so across these different issue areas, do you still use that juxtaposition of looking at state-based responses and, and looking at an approach that's more people-centered? I know one of your core concepts is about indigenizing security. Certainly there's a lot of overlap and that kind of conceptual vocabulary, that conceptual toolbox is something that I, I do feel that I'm, I'm using in this other project or this other focus as well. And that's in part because I've come to see uh, more broadly that these questions of indigenous politics, um, the distinct interests, including perhaps security interests that indigenous peoples within Canada and beyond Canada for that matter, um, articulate for themselves, have a very particular role to play in a broader political context outside of just the Arctic. And so while I don't think it, it fits quite as tidily in terms of a juxtaposition, because I'm not doing the same kind of comprehensive map and analysis of Indigenous perspectives on these different issues across a number of different domains of what I identify as these national security interests, um, there is a relevance of what are fundamentally Indigenous politics or, or Canadian domestic politics involving Indigenous peoples um, that are reflected. And I think that takes a number of different forms, but one of them, and certainly I think a thread that provides some of the continuity, is very much the way in which Indigenous peoples, their organizations, as well as individuals, have place themselves at the center of some of the broader political debates around climate change policy and natural resource development in this country. And so to the extent that some of the security implications of climate change are related to, needless to say, climate policy itself, but then also these related uh, domains of public policy, um, Indigenous peoples are part of the conversations by necessity. And, and so there is, a, I think, a necessary incorporation of Indigenous peoples' perspectives and these contentious sub-state politics uh, into, into this project as well. And then in your uh, 
dissertation research that led to the book. You also study the topic of, of climate politics and, and Arctic security by comparing Canada and Norway. So when I looked at the, the title of your book, I was, I was wondering, is the approach taken by these two countries when it comes to polar politics and Arctic security similar or are there very contrasting responses to the changes going on in that circumpolar environment? Mm -hmm. I think it's both to some extent. And that was part of what I, I find to be quite interesting in these findings is um, when we look at the eight Arctic countries, Canada and Norway have, uh, relatively speaking, a lot in common. And so I think they, they are good comparators when we're looking at the broader circumstances polar region because it's otherwise quite a strange mix of states, right? On the one hand, you've got the United States, and on the other hand, you've got Russia, who are both kind of clearly Arctic, but then also have interests and assess their interests through a global lens, not just an Arctic one. So they're they're difficult to compare in some ways to, you know, the small uh, Arctic states of Northern Europe, Iceland, Sweden, Finland, etc. And while Canada is much larger than Norway, for a number of reasons, they have various things in common. Uh, and I I think that that has lent uh, to kind of a greater robustness to that analysis, not least of which because coming out of the 1990s, both Canada and Norway championed within their own foreign policies, the human security agenda, the human security framework. And one of the threads that I was interested in tracing is what happened to that human security framework as far as a lens through which to understand the security implications of climate change. You would think perhaps that uh, both Canada and Norway might have continued to employ human security as a way of understanding what climate change entails in their northern regions. And in fact, one of the things that I found is that while having both undergone processes of updating and reassessing their security interests in light of climate change, neither Canada nor Norway has particularly adopted a human security focus as a way of understanding climate change's significance. And so there was, a, I think, a surprising finding in that respect for me. But then when I continued along the project, just by way of context, I guess, the timing was really interesting on this because I started writing, or I started researching in 2009, and 2007, 2008, 2009 were really busy years for Arctic geopolitics. This was a period when there were a number of high-profile incidents related, uh, for example, to Russia and this planting of a flag on the, on the ocean floor mm -hmm. at the, the North Pole, and there was a very high-level kind of saber-rattling that took place between the government of Canada at the time and the, the Russian government. And, you know, it was a time when, to use the somewhat hackneyed phrase, you know, Arctic politics were really heating up. And yet what I found, specifically with respect to Russia, which is, which is such an important part of the Arctic political context and Arctic security and defense specifically, was that Canada and Norway were actually on really quite different pages in terms of how they spoke publicly and were, were publicly positioning th themselves with respect to to Russia and the supposed threat of a kind of revanchist, expansionary Russia within the circumpolar region. Um, that that was an issue which Canadian officials, to my mind, were really quite willing to use a belligerent kind of discourse and to really try to inflame, in some ways, the idea that Russia was threatening, that there was both national security and national defense implications of Russia's policy in the Arctic, up to the point of very senior Canadian officials, including including the Prime Minister and the Minister of National Defense at the time, making publicly incorrect statements, you know, making mm. factually 
factually incorrect statements about what Russia had or had not done uh, in Arctic airspace. And and so there was a kind of, if you will, casualness and really a production of a narrative for domestic political purposes involving Russia that the government of Canada was engaging in. And when you look at the Norwegian context, it's really night and day, not in terms of the government of Norway not taking Russia seriously as a security and defense issue, but because they take it so seriously. I mean, they share a land border with Russia. They have a deep centuries-long historical relationship with the various incarnations of the Russian polity. Norwegian officials do not casually talk about the prospect of Russian invasion or the prospect of, of Russian violations of Norwegian sovereignty. That kind of discourse is extremely serious in Norway. And consequently, they actually talked less about Russia in many ways because it wasn't being used for these same kinds of domestic political purposes. Interesting. Well, I mean, that strikes me as, as a good area to explore further because you were mentioning the incorrect statements uh, and, and inflammatory rhetoric. And I think that when it comes to the Arctic and the circumpolar environment, there are a lot of misunderstandings or misconceptions that, that we see in public discourses or in official discourses. Is that a recurring peeve of yours when you listen <laughs> to media coverage or official statements on the Arctic? Or, or what might be some of those common misunderstandings or misperceptions? Yeah, well, certainly, I think the last couple of years, the last decade or so, to be an Arctic social scientist, uh, an Arctic scholar has been the best of times and the worst of times. Because on the one hand, the Arctic has become relevant in a way that it has rarely been, you know, previously. There is a public appetite for better understanding about the Arctic. And there's been an engagement by policymakers of various stripes on Arctic issues, which is welcome and, and necessary and is a, a good thing. The worst of times is certainly, I think, rooted in the fact that prior knowledge of the Arctic, both at an elite government level and at a kind of layperson level, is not terribly good. Uh, you know, people don't mm. necessarily have a strong base level of knowledge. And that means that when particular narratives or perspectives on these issues do get taken up in the media, they can have a significant influence on how people understand the Arctic writ large. And so it is very problematic in that sense that we've been contending for really since 2007 with this so-called race for the Arctic or scramble for the Arctic or this kind of Arctic resource and sovereignty competition perspective perspective, which is a very slanted and incomplete understanding of, of what's been happening in Arctic politics in that time. So while there are certainly debates within Arctic scholars on this question, and there are disagreements and, and very you know smart people have differing takes on this, I think there is, generally speaking, a, a recognition that we are not well served by how some of these issues get taken up in the public sphere and that that, uh, that remains an ongoing challenge. I can say, so at the University of Victoria, I, I have introduced a third year course on politics of the global Arctic. It's going really well. It's been a, a ton of fun, but it's also been a fascinating opportunity for me to kind of gauge what kind of prior knowledge my students are coming into that mm -hmm. class with as a, a small, you know, taste of what the, the broader public might think. Do you think that your students would say that you're an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to Arctic security and maybe that geopolitical environment? Are we headed towards more cooperation or more conflict? So I think uh, I, I split both ways depending on which, which angle we're discussing. So with respect to the kind of Arctic cooperation and conflict question, which of those is winning out or which of those is likely to be more dominant in the future, I think I'm, I'm fairly described as being more aligned with the optimistic camp. Uh, I am not somebody who worries overly much about interstate conflict in the Arctic. Uh, I am not somebody who's worried that the Russians are coming. And I feel that there is a real problem problem in the way in which we've constructed Russia as threatening other, as an antagonist in the 
Arctic, when in fact, for a whole host of reasons, Canada and Russia specifically have common ground for cooperation Mm. in the Arctic. We have these massive land masses experiencing some very similar physical, ecological, economic, social, political challenges. There's all kinds of room for potential uh, cooperation and coordination between Canada and Russia, which while currently in this dormant state, you know, since 2014 particularly, and, and perhaps appropriately so, I should add, it's not, those are not Arctic problems. Canada and Russia really have very little to disagree about in the Arctic itself. Our relationship has suffered because of these broader global questions, very important questions, of course, and Russian foreign policy conduct elsewhere in Ukraine and so forth, which have which have spilled over into the Arctic space. But I see very little, I have, I have never really seen a compelling argument for why it is that Russia is something that Canada should worry about from a national security perspective in, in the Arctic space, certainly. And I think that we could broadly say something similar about uh, the other Western Arctic countries as well. I don't think by and large that there's a lot of compelling evidence for, for that kind of an account. But I'm much more concerned concerned and much more pessimistic about the climate change implications of security and defense in the Arctic region. And I think that we have gone so far down this road uh, by we, of course, that's the big global we, the collective Mm -hmm. human we, Mm -hmm. but we've gone so far down this road of failing to mitigate climate change, failing to even have an honest public discussion about climate change in many ways, that it's much too late to avoid many of the changes that are coming. And because the Arctic region is the most sensitive region, just about in the world to climate change because it's experiencing the most dramatic and rapid climate change that is currently being documented. That's already a process that is unfolding in the Arctic uh, outside of human control. And so the extent to which that climactic impact is going to have security and defense consequences that we are now no longer able to avoid is something that concerns me a great deal, both at the human and national security level, and uh, which I, I think I'm pessimistic of just in the sense of wondering whether our capacities and our, pol- our political will will be up to the challenge. I want to switch gears a little bit now to talk about the specifics of uh, your research and, and teaching on this topic. Can you tell us a bit more about your research journey, put it that way? I imagine that doing fieldwork in the Arctic has specific challenges. Cost comes to mind, but I only have my own trip to Iqaluit as a reference. <laughs> but what was your experience like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say from the outset, just to, to set the stage that I feel... Uh, tremendously fortunate to have been able to spend the time in the Arctic that I have and to have been able to see uh, various parts of the circumpolar region. And it's just such a such a gift and such a privilege and something I feel tremendously lucky to have had uh, a number of experiences around. That doesn't make it easy. That doesn't make it uncomplicated. And it certainly doesn't make it cheap. So I agree with you 100% on that point. But it has been a, just a wonderful, wonderful part of my, of my academic career so far. I, I kind of came into studying the Arctic a little bit backwards. And without a deep understanding of Arctic issues at all. My first trip to the Arctic was in the summer of 2009, just a month before I began my doctoral program. I had applied to attend a youth climate leadership conference that was being held in Inuvik in the Northwest Territories. And so I was still considered a youth at that time. And so I participated <laughs> as one of the delegates there. And it was it was a remarkable experience, not only uh, for giving me my first exposure north of 60, but for opening my eyes to a whole plethora of kind of Canadian domestic 
domestic political issues, as I said, indigenous politics issues, the distinct kinds of challenges that these communities and these these political regions are experiencing and are grappling with. Uh, but it was also extremely useful for me in the sense that I met uh, colleagues, in particular a mentor, who have remained incredibly part of my of my journey ever since and have been uh, major influences on my academic work. The mentor being Professor Whitney Lockenbauer, mm-hmm. who's now at uh, Trent University, who uh, I'm so fortunate to have had that kind of arc of our relationship go from being graduate student and mentor, slowly becoming one of collaborator and colleague and friend and now, you know, kind of partners in, in research and partners in work. And uh, I'm tremendously grateful for that. And so I, I've traveled to northern Canada a number of times, um, although interestingly, full disclosure, I have never been to the territory of Nunavut. Much of the research that I did for my dissertation was looking at Inuit uh, in Canada. And so you might think that you would have to go to Nunavut for that work, but um, Inuit organizations are primarily based in Ottawa. And so when you're doing elite level interviews and when you're doing kind of documentary and textual analysis, it wasn't actually necessary for me to go to Nunavut to do that work, but rather go to Ottawa where the center of gravity remains for Canadian Arctic policymaking. So I've had other experiences north of 60, including kind of decisions to pursue my own personal vacation time up there and so on. Mm -hmm. I did a climate science field school in northern Quebec in the Nunavik region, which was also really fascinating. But I would say that the major episode for me in terms of Arctic research was when I did my field work in northern Norway. So I spent uh, around six months, a little over six months in the first half of 2014, living in northern Norway, very high latitude, around 69 degrees latitude in a city called Tromsø. It was a remarkable experience in a number of ways, but not least of which was that it completely shattered my understanding of the Arctic to that date. Because I had traveled somewhat in northern Canada, because I had a greater familiarity with the Canadian Arctic context, I took all of those expectations with me to Norway, where I was on the one hand studying Norwegian official government policy in the Arctic, but then also doing this research on Sami people, the indigenous people of Scandinavia, and their their perspective as indigenous people on security and climate change. Practically nothing that I had learned about northern Canada, practically nothing about northern Canada applied in the northern Norwegian context. They were so different that I really had to abandon all of those expectations and just learn anew how different that region was and how different security and, and climate change itself were actually unfolding in that place. So it was a really, really exciting opportunity, but it, it was just a complete you know, overturning of the apple cart of what I had uh, come to think of the Arctic as and what the expectations I had for that project were, were. And it sounds like in both the Canadian case and the Norwegian case, even though they were quite different in in this respect, Uh, you were exposed and incorporated Indigenous knowledge within your research. I'm sure that informs your thinking. This gets me to think about the the teaching side of things, because there has been a shift in academia to encourage professors to indigenize their curriculum. Uh, I was wondering how you view this shift and what might be some suggestions that you have for colleagues who are entering unfamiliar intellectual territory? Yeah, thank you for that question. It's, a, I think, a really important question and one that extends far beyond the parameters of the Arctic, far beyond the parameters mm-hmm. of you know, my, my work. It touches on so many areas, certainly of political science as a discipline and its related fields, of course. I think it's a really contentious thing, and I think that the language that we use to describe it is really significant. So, for instance, there's a lot of discussion that exists between language language of indigenization on the one hand and language of decolonization on the other. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really instructive thing to kind of contemplate how those two 
things might differ and the extent to which one or the other may actually be either easier to implement or simply possible to implement in a way that the other may not. So by that, what I mean is when I talk about indigenization in the context of my book and my, my doctoral research, the way that I conceived of, of, of indigenization with respect to Arctic foreign and security policy, and I say this as a non-indigenous person, I say this as a non-indigenous scholar, is to include within the academic and policy literature on the subject the perspectives of indigenous peoples, right? I viewed my mm -hmm. role as being something of an interlocutor. I wasn't trying to produce new knowledge per se. I wasn't trying to divine some kind of underlying indigenous conception of things, but rather to communicate to an audience that seemed, for various reasons, largely uh, divorced from or largely isolated from those indigenous discourses on security and climate change that already existed. I was trying to bring those two things into dialogue and to try to connect them more effectively. And so mm -hmm. I conceive of indigenization in my own work as being nothing more than recognizing the empirical and theoretical validity of indigenous perspectives on the world, particularly when those perspectives are on their own interests, their own traditional territories, their own homelands, and incorporating that on an equal basis with the elite perspectives and the official state-sanctioned perspectives uh, that we typically hear. But because my work was elite focused, it was it was elite interviews, it was looking at very, very educated, very cosmopolitan indigenous leaders, people of tremendous sophistication and political influence, uh, and the organizations that they represent and the way those organizations reflect their interests in the world. It was relatively easy to do in that sense. It doesn't differ, I think, terribly much from doing research with other types of elite actors, as opposed to what I think people typically understand when they think of indigenous research being this kind of community level ethnographic work, which is incredibly important, but is also very, very fraught because of the very ugly history of academic work of that nature, not least of which in the Arctic specifically, mm -hmm. and because of the power dynamics and the, you know, the layers of power that exist when these researchers kind of parachute in and spend time in these communities and may or may not be doing anything that is of tremendous value to those communities themselves. I think that a my work has largely avoided some of those ethical concerns because of the nature of my, of my research itself. And so to kind of bring this back around, for me, indigenization really does mean the inclusion of those indigenous voices, a respectful incorporation of those perspectives into a broader empirical landscape. That's all very different, of course, from decolonization and the idea of decolonization. And I have found it very interesting, but also very challenging to kind of read and try to engage with much of the more critical literature that exists on indigenous politics in the Arctic and elsewhere that is less interested in indigenization in terms of the incorporation of indigenous peoples into existing structures and institutions and processes than it is about the decolonization of those structures and processes, the dismantling of what is uh, understood as the settler colonial state or the colonial legacy or the ongoing colonialism of, of power holders and so forth. I think that there is a much deeper kind of epistemological question about whether or not international relations as a discipline, Canadian political science as a discipline, and perhaps self-evidently the Canadian state as an institution, as an actor, whether those can be meaningfully decolonized in the same way I'm less persuaded of. But I think they can certainly be indigenized by amending their long-standing practice of excluding indigenous peoples mm -hmm. from being able to enter and participate fully within their conversations. Thank you. Very comprehensive and nuanced answer. I feel like we could probably spend an entire podcast on just this issue. 
I have one final question, and I have to ask you about Canada-U.S. relations. These have been particularly testy recently. The relationship between Trudeau and Trump goes from cozy to catty very quickly, depending on the topic. <laughs> Since the Arctic has been a point of disagreement between Canada and the U.S., do you have some parting thoughts on the bilateral relationship for this new decade? Well, I, first of all, I love Cozy to Caddy. I think that's a great title for an article in waiting. I, I hope you <laughs> use that. Yeah, I mean, I certainly have some thoughts because it's actually been a really relevant, although I think underappreciated part of the Arctic context specifically. Um, and so by that, what I mean is uh, the liberal government, uh, Justin Trudeau's liberals, of course, were first elected in the fall of 2015. And that dovetailed with the last year and a few months of the Obama presidency, of course. In that year, you know, there was a lot of discussion, of course, around the, the bromance between them and their personal connection and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we've been so distracted and so busy since 2016 with other things that we forget that it was also a really productive period. There was also a period where there was an alignment of, call it ideology, call it worldview, between the Prime Minister of Canada and the President of the United States for the first time in rather a long time. You know, that there had not been such an alignment when Harper and Obama were in office, nor indeed much when the preceding Liberal governments were in office over the Bush administration. So it's been a while since Canada and the United States were kind of on the same page on, on some of these big foreign policy issues. So that first year from the fall of 2015 until the fall of 2016 was very generative in a number of different ways, but specifically in the Arctic space. I mean, Obama was the first sitting president of the United States to go to the Arctic, which I was shocked by. I was shocked mm. that it was true that no president had been to the Arctic while in office. I just think of the state of Alaska and what a remarkable mm -hmm. thing that is. Anyway, Obama went to Anchorage to participate in the climate change conference. You you know, he made climate change, of course, one of the signature issues of his second term in office. But for him to explicitly link it to the Arctic and in his address, that was something called the Glacier Conference, Obama used the kind of discourse of climate change, which is very familiar to some of us, but very uncommon for senior policy makers and senior public officials to employ this very dire, near apocalyptic conception of what failing to address climate change will actually result in. And there was the sitting president of the United States using the power of his office to, to make that case. So it was a very, very powerful moment for, for many of us. And it was one that also informed uh, some cooperative initiatives between Canada and the United States, focused, for example, on a moratorium on offshore oil and gas development in most of the North American Arctic. A policy that was uh, controversial, it, it's worth noting, a policy that received significant blowback, not least of which from Indigenous peoples who said that they were not consulted and that was problematic. But from a climate change perspective and from the perspective of addressing the supply side dimension of fossil fuels, not just the demand side, uh, it was a really important initiative and one that seemed to augur a new, you know, high level political awareness of the way in which the Arctic was implicated in these questions and that some kinds of industrial development, resource extraction in the Arctic, which have been widely pressed for by industry and by some other stakeholders, was not going to happen and shouldn't happen. And that we needed to come up with an alternative vision of the Arctic's political economic future to substitute for a sector, fossil fuel uh, extraction, that is so problematic from this broader global climate perspective. So that first year, there was a high-level statement between Canada and the United States. There was this moratorium and actual policy put into place. And there was just a you know broader alignment of government on the, on 
on the importance of climate change and the importance of international cooperation uh, and the Arctic as this this important and somewhat distinct uh, global space. Needless to say, that agenda just completely fell apart after the 2016 U.S. election. And there is a kind of differing perspective on how much more we might have heard about the Arctic from the liberal government had Donald Trump not been elected president, because as it was, clearly in the context of the threatened cancellation of NAFTA, in the context of the broader assault upon Canada's national interests and the institutions that underpin Canada's national interests that was undertaken by the Trump administration, the Arctic and these questions of environmental and climate and energy policy in the Arctic were simply not a high priority and largely fell off of the government agenda as a result. And to a certain extent, we're still in that space. You know, there has not been a substantial amount of change or, or movement on the Arctic file within Canada since 2016 because government was, you know, was preoccupied with other things. And in the absence of an American partner, it becomes much more challenging, both from a political and an economic perspective, for Canada to undertake some of these initiatives. So there was a real impact of the 2016 election on the prominence of the Arctic within Canadian politics and of it was a complete stymieing of some of the momentum that seemed to be pushing us towards a more focused, concerted engagement with climate change and the, the political and economic policy consequences of a climate change reality in that region. And we're still, I think at this point, really just waiting for the resolution of the upcoming American election to know whether or not that's likely to change. Well, it's a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm. And we'll all be looking forward to your book. Please let us know when it comes out so we can promote it on Battle Rhythm. I look forward to that. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. I appreciate it. Thank you, Will. As we deal with impeachment and other stuff going on in the world, and with the run-up for the American election ahead, one of the things that I see coming back is something that's annoyed me greatly, the false equivalence machines. That is, the New York Times and other news outlets tend to say, party A says X, party B says Y, and tries to present things as evenly as possible. And the problem is, is that the truth is not necessarily even. That is, that one side might be doing something incredibly awful, and the other side might be doing something that is slightly bad, and they're seen as being equivalent or that he says X, she says Y, and it's left with the reader to, to have the full understanding of the entire context to judge what's going on. I do think the media needs to get at the truth, and right now I think we can look at events going on in the world, and particularly uh, in the United States, and point out that the Trump administration is distinct and unique. It's not a typical administration. It's done awful things in foreign policy. It is treating its neighbors and allies Poorly, much more poorly than the typical American administration. I understand that people complain that Obama was uh, too interested in, in getting out of uh, the various missions in the Middle East, and Trump is as well, so they're maybe the same, right? And the answer is no, they're not the same. Obama took much time to think about each step. He considered the policies of the allies, the needs of the allies, and while it was American foreign policy, American interests that mattered more than the allies, there was consideration of the secondary effects, the tertiary effects, of American foreign policy. Whereas Trump makes decisions from his gut, usually based on his own wealth interests, uh, whether somebody has a Trump Tower, whether somebody is pandering suitably, whether they're playing it to his ego, and he's making all kinds of threats and, and promises he has no intention on keeping. And so it's night and day between Obama and Trump, even when they both have some kind of interest in getting the United States out of the Middle East, 
uh, if Trump were willing to do it thoughtfully uh, with good policy, uh, considering the needs of the allies, realizing that we're not going to stick around to just suck out the oil out of the, out of the countries, if you actually had a, a reasoned policy, I'd be all in favor of getting this out of the Middle East, United States, Canada, NATO, all the rest. But the way he does it, the way he talks about it, uh, is reckless, it's ill-informed, and it's not that comparable to what previous administrations have done. So all I ask is for people to be aware of the false equivalence machines, that it's not that both sides are equal in any of these things. Whatever the sides are, uh, take seriously that one side, one actor, is doing more bad things than the other in, in dramatically more damaging ways. And it's not talk just about the United States, although that's what really what I'm focused on, but anywhere that when there's this temptation for the media to say, a versus B, and sort of go, eh, it's up to you to judge. You need to judge. You need to take seriously that these things are not equivalent, even if the coverage of it suggests that they are. Thank you very much. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS, or email them to cdsn.rcds.outlook.com. Thank you.